invite you to turn with me this morning again to the book of Ruth, a little Old Testament oasis in the middle of a desert of Old Testament history. Go to the book of Judges and turn right, or go to the book of 1 Samuel and turn left, and you'll find four chapters called the book of Ruth. The series of five messages, this is the middle one, there'll be two more, is entitled The Romance of Redemption. Now, we're just beginning to get to the romance part today, but it will come to conclusion in uh, chapter 4. Well, actually, it'll really get serious in chapter 3. We'll look at that next week as as we preach a message next week entitled Getting at the Feet of Him Who Has the Right to Redeem. We'll see that in chapter 3. But today, the message is entitled, Under God's Wings. Under God's Wings. The text, Ruth chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. Would you stand with me as we read God's Word together? Ruth chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, and we'll read uh, down uh, through verse 23. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land, and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then he said, or then she said, rather, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had come, and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. Now, are you like me? Are you beginning to sense something's happening here? Yeah, I I see a a romance budding, don't you? I mean, he's just met the woman, and he's already struck by her. Now, he says, uh, give her, I like the way the King James says, give her some handfuls on purpose. Uh, that's the way he translates that. Drop some down and let her, you know, help her along the way. 
And um, then he says, in verse 17, so she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Now, folks, that's approximately six gallons. That would feed 50 soldiers one day. So that means it would feed two widows for a number of weeks. Well, this is significant. I mean, when you're starving, she brings home six gallons in one day. Amazing. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, about, and it was about an ephah. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Again, we see God working behind the scenes providentially. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Now chapter 1 was intended to introduce Naomi and Ruth to us, the first two of three important characters. This, this, this chapter is designed to introduce Boaz to us. And so she named him Boaz, which means strength. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. The living being Ruth, the dead being her dead husband, Malon. Now that's an interesting statement. How is God not forsaking Malon by introducing her to Boaz? Well, we'll see. Naomi said to her, this man is a close relative and one of our redeemers. Hey, something's going on here. That's the Hebrew word goel. This man is one of the only two left who could possibly redeem us from this situation. Give us food, restore our farm, and restore our family line. It's just amazing that you just happened to fall upon his field. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she, so she kept close to the young women of Boaz. Now remember, it's the time of the judges when everybody did what was right in his own eyes. It was a dark, dark time, morally, socially, every other way. So she was at risk of being assaulted and raped. And so Boaz gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Now, Father, open this passage to our heart today. We ask that you give us light and give us a willing heart to obey. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Without her being aware of it, Ruth is being caught up in God's sovereign, redemptive plan for the world. She had no idea what was going on. But God is weaving together circumstance after circumstance. God has a plan. God has a vision of bringing ultimately a Messiah into the world. And Ruth is absolutely essential both to the birth of King David and ultimately to the birth of Jesus Christ. But at this present time, the circumstances certainly don't seem that, that it's very good. Here she is, 
a gleaner, not a harvester or a reaper. You see, those were paid employees. But she is absolutely, she is, uh, uh, she's coming to the field to glean, which was the social security system of the Jews. God had in the book of Leviticus said that they were not to glean all of the barley, but were to leave the corners for the poor people to get, and to not pick up all of the, of the grain, but to leave some lying down so that the poor people could come and pick it up. Now some did that unwillingly, but they did it because they had to, because the law said to. That's found in the book of Leviticus uh, chapter 25. But, um, so, but here is Boaz showing a whole different attitude. His gift of grain to, uh, to uh, his future wife Ruth was not out of uh, the law having him making him do it, but it was because he loved her and he wanted to do it. Now, as we look at this text, I've broken it down into three sections. First of all, I want you to notice the glorious, what I'm calling the gracious and glorious provision, the gracious and glorious provision that Boaz made for Ruth. Now keep in mind that Boaz in this book is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. His relationship with Ruth is a picture of our Lord's relationship with the church. And so when we see Boaz providing for Ruth, it is also a picture of how the Lord Jesus Christ provides for His people the church of Jesus Christ. Now God provides, uh, Boaz provided for Ruth and ultimately God for us in three different ways. We saw last week in the first eight verses of chapter 2 that God provides food. This is when she went into the field and gleaned this epa or six gallons of food. So that was a gift, that was a provision that uh, Boaz made for Ruth and ultimately for Naomi. So God provides food. Secondly, we saw that God provides a restoration of the farm. In Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 25, which I will not read, but just to share with you that that, that passage in Leviticus 25, 25, just says that whenever a, like Elimelech or anybody lost their farm, whether it was out of poverty or death or whatever, then the nearest of kin, or if not the nearest of kin, then the next would be able or enabled and by the law asked to buy the farm that their deceased brother or, or relative had lost, either of poverty or death. And so uh, it just so happens that, that Boaz is related to Elimelech. He's of the same family. So he can not only bring food, he can, re he can buy the farm and give it back to them. But there's a third thing. It, it tells us in Ruth chapter, uh, rather in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6 in your outline there, it tells us another law. It's called uh, the, the uh, Le Leverite marriage. Leverite has nothing to do with the tribe of Levi. Leverite simply means, means brother. And so whenever a brother would die or be killed or whatever, then it became the responsibility of his next, his brother, the deceased's brother, to marry the widow. And then uh, I can see some of you thinking, what, what would that mean for me here? I, uh, uh, but but that, that's the way it was in Hebrew history. The brother of the deceased would marry the widow, 
And then the first son that they had would, would be considered the son of the man who died. So that Elimelech's uh, would have a, an heir. Or in the case of here, it would be Malon rather than Elimelech because he ends up marrying Ruth. So uh, here's uh, in God's gracious provision for food, for the restoration of the farm, and for the family line to continue. Now why it was so important that Ruth's family line continue is because Ruth became the, the grandmother of King David and ultimately the great, 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 great grandmother of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you see how important it was that uh, Ruth uh, continue, that she live and that she marry and that they have children. And so God is providing. Aren't you grateful that our God knows our needs before we do? And Philippians chapter 4 verse 19 says, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Jesus Christ. And so that God is a gracious provider. Number two, we, no, we go from the gracious provision of Boaz and ultimately of God to the powerful metaphor that describes our relationship with our heavenly Boaz. You'll notice in chapter 2 and verse 12, chapter 2 verse 12, uh, he says, and let me just read it for you here, the, the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you. This is Boaz speaking to Ruth. That be, be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, this is a powerful metaphor that's really used throughout the Bible. It's the metaphor of God having wings and his people gathering under the wings of God. When I was in college uh, taking Old Testament, I remember our professor, Dr. James Travis, introduced us to us a word. It was a word we didn't use. My daddy was a sharecropper, so we didn't use this word very often. In fact, it was the first time I'd ever heard it. Anthropomorphic. Now, you know, that's a pretty good word for a country boy. And so what in the world is anthropomorphic? Well, that means attributing to God human qualities. Uh, for example, Isaiah said, uh, uh, talks about the Lord's hand is not shortened, that we cannot save. His ear is not heavy, that he cannot hear. Uh, that simply means that, uh, let me ask you, does God have ears? <laughs> does God have hands? Does God have arms? Uh, talk about, in Second Chronicles, it talks about the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of them who love him. And so the Old Testament says God has eyes and arms and hands and all of those things. Now I'm asking you, uh, does God really have those things? The scripture says that God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so if God is a spirit, that means he doesn't have a corporeal body. He doesn't have eyes and hands and all of those things. That's a way of expressing to us anthropomorphically, aren't you impressed with that? Anthropomorphically that, that, that God is a God who with hands, he cares for us, with eyes, he does see us, he knows everything about us, he's omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, that's God. And that's just a way of trying to help us understand the kind of God he is. And so he's saying here that, uh, that, that, that God is, a, uh, is like a, a great eagle who brings his eaglets, or who, she brings her eaglets under her wings, and she protects those little eaglets. 
from danger. Now, when we first read this, it sounds like, you know, Ruth asked Boaz this question. I think it's a question we all need to ask. She says to her up in, in verse 10, she says, why have I found favor in your eyes? That's a good question. That's a question we might ought to ask. Why have you found favor? What is it about you that impressed God? What is it about you that caused God to act with favor and grace upon you? That's a great question. And so then Boaz gives an answer, and it sounds like a works answer. He says, well, I've been watching you since the first day you came back. He said, I saw how you treated your your mother-in-law with kindness and graciousness. You even come out here and worked your hands off to provide for her. He said, I've seen that. He said, I've seen how you left your mother and daddy down in Moab. That's hard. I've seen how you have, you have done all of those things. And uh, God has shown favor upon you. And it sounds like he's saying, uh, God acted in grace upon you because of your works. You might come to that conclusion until you get to this point. He said, the Lord repay you. Now, what are we talking about? Is Ruth working hard to repay God? No. He says, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Hey, folks, mark it down. The reason, the reason that God has acted with grace, she asked the question, why did you act with grace toward me? Is because she had run to Jesus. That's our New Testament way of saying it. She had run to Jehovah God. She had gotten under the wings of Jehovah God. And she is looking to him in trust and in faith to protect her, to provide for her. And so the reason why she was loving toward Naomi is because she had come to know God. In Ruth chapter 1 and verse 16, she had said, your God is now from now on going to be my God. And where you, uh, where you go, I'm going with you. And where you die, I'm going to die. Which meant she's going to be, she's not just embracing uh, Jehovah as God for the day, or God for the week, or God for the month. She's embracing Jehovah for the rest of her life. And she said, where you die, I will die. And where you are buried, I will be buried. So see, this was a long time, lifetime commitment that she had made to Jehovah God. And she frames it this way, getting under the wings of God. So you see, we're not employees working for God. We're eaglets <laughs> running to get under the wings of God. Amen? And that's a whole different picture. And we do what we do because of whose we are. She cared for her mother-in-law because she'd gotten under the wings of God. She didn't mind working from sunup to sundown because she knew God was protecting her and God was caring for her. You see, her faith in Jehovah motivated her to love other people motivated her to work for Boaz. Not because she had to, but because she wanted to. Hey, let, let me just say this. We are saved by grace through faith alone. But we're not saved by a faith that is alone. Our faith, if it is genuine biblical faith, animates us and motivates us to righteous living and loving ministry. Now, that doesn't mean we'll all have a bushel of fruit right under our 
when we first get saved, but it means that God saved us and he put his nature, his spirit within us, and that should motivate us to move out in trying to be like God, in seeking to follow God. So there is a, what I call a gracious provision and a powerful metaphor. Now, let's take some time to look at number three, and that's the blessed results. Now, th- these results are simply showing when the Lord did uh, save Ruth and she got under his wings, then God began to act toward her with graciousness and kindness. And some these things that I'm going to mention to you now are simply the results of her getting under the wings of God. That's a metaphor. That's a way of saying of her committing her life and surrendering her life to Jehovah God. All right, so let's look at those. First of all, in verse 8, we see the blessing of guidance. The blessing of guidance. Look what he says in verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Not leaving anything to chance. Boaz tells her where to go, what to do, what to expect. And so he guides her. He guides her. Uh, My life's verse, which I adopted while I was uh, an airman no class (laughs) in Okinawa in 1967, 68, Uh, My last verse is this, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will, what church? Direct your paths. So the Lord says, if you'll trust me and surrender to me, then I will guide you, I will lead you. And I'm so grateful that God is a God who provides guidance for my life. I would be lost and and without a spiritual GPS if it wasn't for God's promise to guide us. So he gives the blessing of guidance. And you know, John 7, 17 is my favorite verse on the will of God. And when someone comes to counsel with me and they're struggling with the will of God, I always bring this verse up. In John chapter 7, verse 17, let me just ask you to look at it with me. You might want to mark it in your Bible if you never have, but it's one of the it's one of those classic verses that, um, t- that to me is, is so helpful when it comes to the, to the uh, will of God. John chapter 7, verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will. Now let me ask you, is that you? Is that, is that you? Do you will to do God's will? Do you want to do God's will? That's a question we all have to face. Now he says, if that's you. If you will to do God's will, he will know, if if you will to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I speak of my own authority. In other words, if I desire to do the will of God, I can know the will of God. But so many people have this notion, I want to know the will of God so I can vote on it. I want to know the will of God so then I can decide if I want to do it. It doesn't work that way, folks. You will never really have peace about the will of God if if you're just saying, God, show it to me, and then I'll decide if I want to. You see, the Bible says, if any man will do his will, then he shall know. 
And the way we discover God's will is making an unqualified surrender of our heart and mind to do God's will, whatever it is. I remember when God was calling me to preach. And uh, I mean, I'm the kind of person, it's a miracle that I'm standing up here because when I was in high school, I was so shy. Now, this is the truth. The first date I ever had with this beautiful lady over here, I had somebody else call her and see if she'd go with me. <laughs> I mean, I, I wasn't, you know, I just wasn't that brave. I, I really wasn't. And I avoided public speaking like the plague. I mean, I, it scared me to death. And, and, and God, I, I, I was saved when I was six weeks before I graduated from high school. And almost immediately, God began to work in my heart about be, be preaching the gospel. And it was so foreign to me, it scared the daylights out of me. And, and I kept saying, Lord, you know, I, I kept praying this prayer, God, show me your will, show me your will. <laughs> I, I mean, I already knew God was calling me, but I would not release and surrender to it. And it wasn't until I came to the point where I said, now, Lord, I remember a Sunday night, Blue Springs Baptist Church, Blue Springs, Mississippi. I went forward and said to my uncle, I don't know what God wants me to do, but whatever it is, I'm saying yes. And you know, after I made that commitment, it was just as clear. God wanted me to preach. You just, you, you're trying to find God's will, young people? i tell you what, do. Start doing what you already know is God's will and say, God, I'm surrendered to do your will, whatever it is. And God is committed to you to show you what it is. So he, God, first of all, gave, he, he gave guidance. Number two, he gave protection. Look at verse 9, protection. He said, let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. That's the reapers, the young men and women. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. You see, Ruth was a young, attractive Moabite, and it hadn't gone without notice to Boaz. He had recognized her, and he not, wanted nothing to happen to her. And so he implemented the first anti-sexual harassment policy in the business world. They went far beyond the letter of the law. He said, you don't touch her, you protect her, and you don't rebuke her. That's pretty good. He is protecting her. I, uh, my family experienced God's protection in, in a great way. We, we have all of our life in ways we probably don't even know. But one night, I, in my, I was pastoring my first church, and, and I, I was in college, and I, I was finding it difficult to study for exams because I'd go up in the den and I'd pass out, just go to sleep. I couldn't stay awake. And um, so we went on that way for actually probably several weeks. Um, and uh, one night, our whole family was asleep. It was 2 o'clock in the morning. And all of a sudden, my oldest son, some of you, many of you know Barry. He's an electrician here in Hernando. Well, he was just a little boy. And uh, Barry woke up at 2 o'clock in the morning crying. But it was not a normal cry. It was a staccato, kind of a weird kind of cry. He would, he would just cry loud and then quit, and then he'd just kind of like a machine gun. Woke me up, and I got up and went in, and uh, he said, Daddy, I need to go to the bathroom. And I picked him up, and I took him to the bathroom, and when I set him down on the commode, he just, he, he just passed out, just folded up and fell down into the commode. I picked him up, and, um, and when I did, I realized something was wrong. I went to try to open the window. I didn't have strength to open it. And so I, I just called my mother-in-law, 2 o'clock in the morning. They live five minutes away. 
And I said, Miss Sarah, there's something bad wrong in our house. Will you come now? And hung up. That's all I said to her. Can you imagine how she felt? I think back now to what I put them through. I can't imagine. And then I started trying to wake everybody up. Our other son, John, was in the bed with Barry. We, I got him up. I went in to get Rose and try to get her to get out of the house. And she wouldn't wake up. And I call her and she just, you know, like she was drunk or something, you know. And uh, finally I got her up and had to almost drag her out of the house. Long story short, we were that close to death from carbon monoxide. If you've ever read much about carbon monoxide poisoning, you don't usually wake up. I mean, it's highly unusual. Once you pass out, you never wake up. And the only reason we woke up was Barry crying at 2 in the morning. That woke me up. That normally doesn't happen. All of us had pneumonia. All of us was in the hospital in the same room. But I look back. I have only one explanation for that, and that's God. God just wasn't through with me yet. Why God allows some to wake up and some not, that's in the mystery of his will. We certainly didn't deserve it, but God chose to wake us up. God protected us. I want you to know I'm so grateful for a God who has that much personal attention to you and to me. That God is a God who protects his people. Well, so there's protection. That came to Ruth. God was protecting her. Then number three, there's a blessing of grace. Oh my. She said, then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said, why have I found favor in your sight? She found grace, not because of the work she had done, but because she hid underneath the wings of Jehovah. I'm so grateful for grace. For by grace are you saved, through faith, that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. So there is, there is the wonderful gift of grace. And then uh, next, number four, there's the blessing of provision. Verses 14 through 16 shows how, how Boaz provided all that Ruth could possibly want, to the point that it said she ate until she was satisfied. I wonder if she had ever been satisfied before. But he provided everything she needed. You, you see, the Mosaic law uh, required that they not go back over the fields and, and pick up what had been dropped. But Boaz went, went much further than that. The scripture says he dropped handfuls on purpose for Ruth. And that evening she took home six gallons for Naomi. Well, have you ever thought of how God provided for the children of Israel. Let me just share something with you. I'm, I'm winding this message down. This past Thursday, I'm a trustee at Blue Mountain College, and I had a subcommittee meeting um, with uh, the uh, academic, uh, the president of academic affairs, Dr. Enzor. She's a great Christian lady. And in the middle of the meeting, we were talking about how God had just wonderfully provided for Blue Mountain College. It's amazing. And so she pulled this little article out, and she read it to us. And I said, Dr. Enzer, I've got to have that, because I'm going to use it Sunday at the point. I, I want you to hear this. I, I've been preaching the gospel 52 years. I had never thought through all that it took for Moses to take those children of Israel through the wilderness. Now, just listen to this. Moses and the people were in the desert, but what was he going to do with them? They had to be fed and feeding two to three million people requires a lot of food. 
the people needed 2,000 tons, 4 million pounds of food each day. To bring that much food each day would require three freight trains, each a mile long. In the desert, they needed firewood to cook and keep warm. Each day, this would take 4,000 tons with million pounds of wood and a few more freight trains, each a mile long. Of course, they needed water. If they only had enough to drink and wash a few dishes, it would take 11 million gallons each day. And a freight train with tank cars 1,800 miles long just to bring the water. And then another thing, they had to get across the sea in one night. If they went on a narrow path, double file, the line would be 800 miles long and would require 35 days to get through. So there had to be an opening three miles wide so they could walk 5,000 abreast to get over in one night. Each time they camped at the end of the day, they needed a campground two-thirds the size of the state of Rhode Island, about 750 square miles. They journeyed in the desert 40 years. Do you think Moses worked all of this out before he left Egypt? Moses put his trust in God, and God handled things every day for 40 years. If you think God can't handle your problems, think again. Amen? God is a God of provision. Not only is he a God of provision, he's a God of acceptance. Verses 15 and 16 tells us how Boaz, even though Ruth was a Moabite, which meant she was of a despised people, which meant that the Israelites were to have nothing to do with them. But you see, Boaz accepted her. He cared for her. He loved her. God is a God like that. He's a God who loves us, not, not if we do certain things, but he loves us just because he loves us. Isn't that a good word? He loves us, not because we're worthy, but he loves us because he chooses to love us. He's a God who accepts us. You know, Paul said in Ephesians, we are accepted in the beloved. And then the last thing I want to say is the blessing of satisfaction. I alluded to that a moment ago. I won't say much about it, but simply say that because, because Ruth had gotten under the wings of Jehovah for the first time in her little pagan life, her, her religion had failed her. Her family had failed her. It seemed like everything. Her, her life is a tragedy up until this point. But she got under the wings of Jehovah. And for the first time, I think, in her life, she could say, I am satisfied. She was satisfied. I wonder, are you satisfied? Are you satisfied? Or is your heart still looking and longing for meaning, for peace, and I want to tell you where you'll find it. You'll find it in our heavenly Boaz, Jesus Christ. 19, 1989, there was a, a, forest, a, a fire in Yellowstone National Park. Uh, quite a bit of, of the park was damaged or destroyed. And after the fire was over, the rangers began to go up into the mountainous part where the fire was to check out and see the extent of the damage. And as some rangers were walking into the area that had been burned severely, they came across an unusual sight. There underneath 
one of the trees was a petrified bird. It was an awful sight. Like a statue standing there, ashen, burned. One of the rangers took a stick and knocked the bird over. And to his surprise, three little chicks came running out from under that bird. What an incredible illustration. All this mother bird had to do to save her life was fly away. But she chose not to save her life so that her chick's life, her chicks would be alive. You know, she could have survived while they died, but she chose to die so they could live. Does that remind you of anything? That's what my heavenly Boaz did for me. Jesus Christ, when I, as a 17-year-old boy, went up and crawled up into his arms and got under his wings, that's just a metaphorical way of saying when I came to Christ, when I was saved. When I got under the protection and provision of the Lord Jesus, when I crawled up under the arms of God, my Savior, he took the fiery wrath of God that I deserved. He died for me. All the punishment, all the hell that I deserved, Jesus took it. He could have called 10,000 angels and he would not have had to die. But rather he said, I want to die. That's why I was born, Jesus would say. He was born to die. He took the wrath I deserved so that I could receive the righteousness that he gave to me. He who knew no sin became sin for me that I might be made the righteousness of God in him.